ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, good afternoon. Selena Green with you for The Country Hour today. Coming up, Grain Producers SA has proposed changing the collection method and rate for a couple of industry funds, so stick around and find out how and why they're proposing to do that in just a moment. And several young South Australians are on their way to Tasmania to do our state proud in the national show judging competitions, and you're going to meet a couple of them. I was always really interested in the cattle judging at the Royal Adelaide Show. I loved going along and watching it, and I probably back then never thought that I would be in the room judging myself. A couple of uh, great young people heading off to represent our state that you'll meet in this next half an hour. But first today, grain producers across South Australia are being asked your thoughts on a proposal to change the collection method and rate for the Grain Industry Fund and the Grain Industry Research and Development Fund. A consultation period has just begun. To tell us more, I'm joined by John Gladigo, who is the chair of Grain Producers South Australia. Thanks for joining me on The Country Hour. It's great to talk to you, Selena. So tell us, uh, firstly, the current method for collecting for the fund. How does it work at the moment? Uh, at the moment, the levy collection system for the, the GIP and the GIRDF uh, is a, a, a volume-based system, so it's based on 20 cents and 30 cents a tonne. And that's been in place for, for a long, long time. It's, in fact, it's, it hasn't changed since uh, 2011-12 when it first came in. So I think uh, you know we've been really fortunate uh, as South Australian growers to have this, this really innovative levy system uh, in place, which really is the envy of the rest of the grain-producing states here in Australia it's allowed us to provide really strong advocacy and support to South Australian grain growers as well as very targeted um, state-based research, which has been great. But it is a really different world now than to what it was 20 or 30 years ago um, when pretty much all of our uh, industry was based around cereals. I mean, effectively, it was around wheat and barley. And uh, you know, due to that targeted research and, and our very innovative growers here in South Australia, we're now growing much more higher-value crops. Uh, we're seeing a lot more, you know, lentils, canola, uh, durum wheat, um, chickpeas, even. And so, you know, because of that, in some ways, because as our industry is modernised, we also need to modernise the way we collect our levies and actually make them uh, far more equitable. Okay, so the change that you're proposing, if it goes, in, how would that be collected differently? It would actually be collected on, on a uh, on a value-based system rather than a volume-based system. So, you know, previously it was 20 cents a tonne for the GIF, which goes to, to, to GPSA, and 30 cents a tonne for the GRDF, which is the fund that goes um, to, to SAGIT. Uh, under the new proposed system, it would be 0.1% of the value of the grain would go to the, the GIF and uh, 0.12 would go to SAGIT effectively. So there's two things here. One, one is actually about making it uh, much more equitable because uh, I mean, they're currently um, growers that uh, are growing you know, predominantly barley are paying uh, that 20 cents a tonne and 30 cents a tonne on, on, on grains worth $300 a tonne, whereas you know, lentil growers at $1,000 a tonne or canola at $800 a tonne aren't, uh, I guess, paying uh, an equitable amount, I guess, going forward. So does that mean that there will be growers out there, and we're saying this is in a proposal stage at the moment, yep, though, who absolutely. could end up paying 
quite a bit more than what they currently are, others who may quite pay less than what they're currently paying? Uh, it's, it's, we're actually looking to also to bring in, in a bit of an uplift as well because it actually hasn't um, changed since the, the system was bought in 12 years ago, so there hasn't been an uplift in that time as well. Um, but certainly you know, those that are predominantly growing... Um, those really high-value crops will be paying more, but then they have also, I guess, really benefited from the uh, that increase in value and from that innovation and from that research and from the ability to be able to grow those crops going forward. So ultimately, this is a decision for growers uh, and, and whether they see the value in, in what uh, GPSA pr- um, provides and, and the value that uh, SAGA provides uh, to the industry so we can actually propel our industry even further forward. So what's the uh, process behind making this decision? You, you're consulting with growers at the moment. You're wanting to hear what they think of this? Yes, we're going into an eight-week co- consultation period. Uh, we acknowledge it's going into harvest, but uh, we, we had to do a, a lot of work uh, leading up to this point. So we hope that while people are sitting on, on headers and chaser bins and, and they can look at, jump on their phone and actually have a bit of a look um, through the proposal uh, as well, we're looking for a commentary back to us uh, on how people would feel about that and ultimately uh, all uh, levy-paying uh, growers, members of GPSA, get to vote on this uh, in the next eight weeks. Um, and uh, we will take the results of that to the Minister. Um, effectively, the Minister needs to see that there's broad industry support uh, in order for the change to be enacted. So at the end of the day, it's in growers' hands about how they feel about the industry going forward and, and how they feel they're represented. And is it the Minister who must give the final tick of approval to this? It's the minister, yes, it's the Minister who must give the final tick of approval for it to be legislated going forward, which we're hoping to happen in the 2024 uh, cycle. John, just remind us, the, the funds that are collected, where does it go and what does it actually go towards? There are these, the, the two funds. So there's the gift. The gift fund is the current 20 cents a tonne, proposed to be 0.1%. Um, that goes into a fund to which GPSA applies every year to take funds to use for advocacy for the growers in South Australia. The uh, GIRDF fund, which is currently at 30 cents a tonne, uh, proposed to be 0.12%. Uh, is funds which goes to um, SAGET, um, which is used for uh, innovative and very targeted uh, research in South Australia and, and allowing us to, to leverage funds off of, uh, of the GRDC and, and other industry groups as well so that we can provide quality research here in South Australia. All right. Well, we'll follow this. As they say, it's a consultation period that's ongoing now. John, before I let you go, I understand yesterday you had an opportunity to meet with the uh, head of the CFS and the Emergency Services Minister. Obviously, we are heading into a very busy time uh, for growers with harvest, but also uh, what is shaping up to be potentially a pretty nasty fire season as well. Absolutely, and it really was a, a really productive meeting. It's, uh, you know, we, we have regular meetings with the CFS and, and with the Minister, and uh, in this season, obviously, it's cut off very quickly uh, this year, and El Nino is upon us, and, and we're expecting the, the summer to be uh, you know, very long and with quite high fire danger. So it was a fantastic opportunity for us to sit down and, and discuss our, our joint approach and joint messaging, I guess, going forward. Um, I think, as most farmers will know here in South Australia, that uh, we we had some discussions around the, the uh, CFS who were proposing to change the harvest code uh, a, a couple of months ago, and we're really uh, pleased that the CFS made a common sense decision uh, about maintaining that uh, harvest code of practice with a cease harvest number of 35 measured at uh, two metres, which has worked so exceptionally well for our growers and for the state over the last. Um, decade or so and has certainly been endorsed by South Australian growers and so we're really pleased that we now can move forward and, and uh, be 
really focused on how we can work together to keep uh, not only our farm safe but also our community safe as well. I imagine everyone is very keen to get out there and crack on with it. Absolutely, and um, we've certainly seen you know harvesters beginning in a, in a number of places uh, around the state, and uh, even in my part of the of the Northern Mallee, it's uh, it's probably a couple of weeks earlier than normal. But uh, yeah, there's still some really good crops out there, and we're looking forward to getting into it. John Gladigo, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour today. Great to talk to you, Selena. John Gladigo is chair of Grain Producers South Australia. Check out their website if you want to read more about those proposed changes that he was speaking about earlier. But maybe you've already got some thoughts on what you think of that proposal. One three hundred triple two eight nine one is the talkback number, or the text line zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, several young South Australians are in Launceston, ready to flex their judging muscles and represent our state in the agricultural shows of Australia national competitions. So let's meet a couple of them. First up, 24-year-old Hayley Lewis is flying the flag for SA in both the Young Soils Judges Demonstration Event and the Grains, Oil Seeds and Pulses Young Judges Demonstration Event as well. Good afternoon, Hayley. Afternoon, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, so you're heading over to uh, to Launceston representing South Australia. Firstly, whereabouts in South Australia are you from? Uh, I'm from just out of Strathalbyn on the Fluoro Peninsula. And how long have you been involved in, um, in the Young Judges competition and how did you get involved in it in the first place? Um, I started as a teenager um, mainly doing horse Young Judging events. Um, we've always had horses growing up. Um, so that's sort of where I started. And it wasn't until about five years ago um, that I got into um, the grains industry through work. Um, and then I went and studied agriculture. And while I was at uni is when I started um, doing the young judging at the Royal Show. So I had the opportunity to do that a couple of times. Um, unfortunately, through COVID, the Royal Show was cancelled for a couple of years. So I missed out there. But um, yeah, before I aged out of the competition, I did have a few opportunities to compete at the Royal Adelaide Show in the Grains Judging, which is great. So for those who haven't seen it or been involved in it, just explain how the the judging uh, of grain works. So essentially um, you get given four different types of grain um, and then they give you four samples of each of those types and you've got to place them first to fourth um, and then you have to explain why. So you have to basically back up your decision and say, you know, I've place this one first over this one for this reason um, and you just have to explain to the judge and to the, the audience exactly why you chose that, what qualities you liked that sample better. Um, so you get usually given barley, wheat, canola and then a pulse, so either like peas or fava beans, something like that um, and you just assess each of the four samples within those varieties and place them first to fourth. And we should mention you are doing a couple of competitions while you're over there. It's not just the one that you've been selected for. Yeah, so I'm uh, also competing in the national final for the soils judging. Um, so that was a pilot program uh, that started at last year's Royal Adelaide Show um, that I participated in. That was a really great way to get people um, sort of not only more interested but more aware of, you know, it's not just dirt. There's a lot that goes into, you know, growing something successfully and that begins with the soil. So that's a really great way to educate people as well, particularly members of the public that may not be, you know, as involved in agriculture or anything like that. So, yeah, I'm participating in both the grains and the soils championships while I'm over there. So do you do any sort of practice or prep work in the lead-up to an event like this, especially when you are, you know, representing your state? Yeah, so I, I actually work in the grains industry anyway. Um, so my, I predominantly work with barley. So 
I suppose, day in, day out sort of practice for me. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, leading up to it, I just review Ag Shows Australia. They've got a good guide online um, about the young judging competition and what they expect from participants. So I always go over that. And, then, yeah, I just review my knowledge. I mean, every year, Viterra upload a, a receival standard for the harvest season. So I just go over that because that gives you a really good outline for, you know, what they expect to see in a sample for different quality grades, I suppose, from... You know, particularly in barley, comparing malt to feed. Um, so that's always a good place to start. So, yeah, also there's a few online resources on YouTube as well if you're unfamiliar. Um, that's always a good point of reference as well. Because mm. you're working as a, what, a grain quality lab coordinator you're at the University of Adelaide. So what, yes, what is it that it excites you about your working in the grains industry and the future of the industry? I just think there's so many opportunities. Um, and prior to me... Um, I actually lived on the West Coast for a year, uh, about five years ago, and that's what got me into the grain industry is I started working a harvest season over there and ended up doing a couple of harvest seasons. And then even when I started studying, I was still working in the grains industry. And, you know, I don't come from a cropping background. As I said, we've always had animal horses and, and livestock. So it was sort of a big learning curve for me. And I think there's so many opportunities, not just in the ag industry, but also in the grains industry as a whole whether you want to be in the research sector or in the receivables area, um, you know, and harvest season is a great way to get your foot in the door as well. If you're not sure whether that's something you want to do or something you'd be interested in, um, seasonal work is a great way to sort of dip your toe in and work out whether that's something you want to do. Well, Hayley, great to chat to you today. All the best with the competitions. Uh, Have a great time in Launceston and thanks so much for joining us today. No worries. Thank you very much. Hayley Lewis there, who's competing in those competitions on Saturday, but they get underway. Well, they got underway yesterday, most of them. Uh, Phoebe Eckerman is from the Adelaide Plains. She runs a small uh, limousine cattle herd and works as the re- part of the research team at the University of South Australia's Roseworthy campus. Uh, the 22-year-old is representing our state in the Beef Cattle Young Judges competition. Eliza Berlage caught up with Phoebe earlier and asked her how she got into all of this in the first place. Yeah, I got into beef cattle judging when I was probably about 12 years old. I went along to the SA Junior Heifer Expo and that's where I was first exposed to the beef industry and the even just the idea of cattle judging, it all started from there. Then each year as I went back, I, I learnt more. Um, I was always really interested in the cattle judging at the Royal Adelaide Show. I loved going along and watching it and I probably... Back then, never thought that I would be in the ring judging myself, but I'm really excited to be doing it and have these opportunities to judge cattle myself now, so it's pretty cool. And, yeah, how does the competition all work? There'll be a representative from each state in Australia, and each of us will be judging three groups of cattle. They might have steers, heifers and bulls, and we'll judge our placings of those and then there'll be an overjudge who will also be judging the same classes and we'll get a score on the accuracy of our placings compared to that overjudge and then each of us will do an oral and we'll also get um, a score on that and then the collective scores will total to the final score the entrant with the highest score will be the champion judge for the day. Uh, For those unfamiliar to um, beef cattle judging what sort of things are you judging? Uh, well, we're judging the cattle themselves for structure, so we need them to be able to walk, um, good feet and legs, functionality. So 
want them to be able to reproduce sound reproductive organs, so good udder placement and, and teat placement for females and for bulls sound reproductive organs. And then we're in a beef industry, so they need to be productive, so they need to be full and good capacity and performance and growth for age. And all of these traits will be passed on to their progeny so they can go on and breed sound stock for the future. How do you prepare for judging? Getting involved in lots of judging events myself, junior judging, if, if there's competitions, um, and also having I've had a few opportunities to judge country shows, so judging the Gawler show and the Port Elliot show, um, just to get confidence using the microphones and terminologies, getting out there, um, having as many, even just public speaking in other areas as well, just to develop the skill to be able to um, get your message across to the audience. Phoebe Eckerman there, speaking with Eliza Burlage. And I must say good luck to all of our South Australian competitors in Launceston. As I mentioned, we've got uh, quite a few of them over there representing us at the moment. So good luck to all of them. Uh, I'm going to head to the cattle markets in just a sec, getting the thoughts through this afternoon on uh, this proposal by grain producers to look at the changing the method of collection and the rate uh, for those industry funds. This one text that has come through on the text line says, so an average farm increase of 50% levy, it would be nice if grain producers stated it. It's 22 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green this Thursday afternoon. Well, let's find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market now. For that, we're joined by John Traeger. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. More grain cattle came forward as agents offered 643 live weight and open auction cattle, an increase of 143 head over the previous week. A total of 350 steers, 149 heifers and 122 cows made up the bulk of the offering. Yearling cattle were mostly score two descriptions with only a few ideal trade weights, while the grown cattle offering included some ideal processor types. Cow quality was generally good, with all weights and grades represented. Vealer steers sold mostly firm as they sold from 147 to 220 cents, with Vila heifers easing 8 cents itself from 100 to 175 cents in an overall small and mixed quality selection. Light dealing steers sold firm to sell from 180 to 220 cents. A mixed quality selection of medium dealing steers eased 20 to 30 cents and sold from 120 to 245 cents, as the few heavyweights eased by up to 25 cents to sell from 180 to 220 cents a kilo. Healing heifers of all weights sold generally firm, with light weights selling from 120 to 163, medium weights 115 to 191, and heavy weights 150 to 201 cents. Manufacturing steers lifted up to 20 cents as they sold from 151 to 237 cents a kilo. A good selection of grown steers and heifers sold firm to five cents dearer, with grown steers ranging from 150 to 243 cents, as grown heifers sold from 119 to 220 cents. Light dairy cows sold to 73 cents, medium weights ranged from 73 to 179, with heavy weights selling from 40 to 173 cents. Medium weight beef bread cows sold from 80 to 179 cents, with heavier weights ranging from 130 to 199 cents a kilo. 
Yielding bulls sold from 140 to 153 cents as heavy bulls range from 80 to 215 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger of the Southern Livestock Exchange at Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thank you, John. John Traeger there. It's 24 minutes past 12. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now. And Simon Timkey is our forecaster today. Hello, Simon. Hi there, Selena. Uh, yeah, we had, uh, well, a bit of a cool off, cooling off period, let's call it, for some parts overnight. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and in fact, probably right across the state, we've seen that trough move across now through the, uh, the morning. It, uh, it moved across the far northeast corner uh, and we're seeing um, southwest to southerly winds across all all districts now. So after that uh, pretty warm day yesterday, uh, much cooler conditions across all districts today. Uh, the trough itself, as I said, moved through the far northeast corner now and is slowly moving its way across the eastern states. Uh, and in behind that trough, we have had a um, some some cold and unstable air move across the uh, the agricultural area, which has produced a, a few showers and some isolated thunderstorms uh, uh, as well. And there's been a little bit of small hail in some of those thunderstorms as well. And those storms did. They uh, did extend a fair way inland. inland. We had a, a, a couple of thunderstorms move uh, uh, across the southern part of the, the Riverland even, so they did uh, extend a, a fair way inland. But they have all contracted uh, to the east of our eastern border now, so uh, uh, I think that we won't see any more thunderstorms or, or small hail. And in fact, the... Uh, um, the showers have become pretty isolated as well now and through the afternoon I think we'll gradually see those showers uh, contract southwards so that by late afternoon uh, they'll be confined to, uh, to, to near southern coasts. Uh, we stay in, in that fairly cool um, southwest to southerly airstream for the next couple of days too. The, the, that's uh, around a, um, a high pressure ridge that's extending from a high pressure centre to the southwest of Perth, uh, and that doesn't move much for the next couple of days. It, it becomes uh, a little bit more mobile uh, early Sunday, so so we won't see a, a lot of change in the weather over the next couple of days. So for for the rest of Thursday, as I said, a couple of showers about the agricultural area, gradually contracting southwards. Uh, on Friday. We'll still see the odd shower or two about southern coastal districts, but not extending as far inland as we've seen those showers today. Conditions still pretty cool tomorrow with those uh, uh, moderate southwest to, to southeasterly winds, and those winds probably be a bit fresher at times near the coast. Uh, over the weekend, we, we stay in that uh, um, onshore southwesterly airstream. I think we'll see the showers push a little bit further inland again. So uh, isolated showers uh, about the southern agricultural area on Saturday. Could be a bit of fog out to the west uh, at first on Saturday morning too. Uh, and then on Sunday, I think we might see the showers extend a, a tiny bit further, maybe just the odd shower uh, about the northern agricultural area and near western coasts as well. And the showers perhaps a little bit more frequent about the southern agricultural area on, uh, on Sunday. Uh, on Monday, uh, the, the showers will, will clear pretty quickly, I think. Maybe the odd uh, light shower around during Monday morning about the agricultural area and near western coasts. But by afternoon, I think they will have uh, all, all cleared away. Uh, and then through the middle part of next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, dry and mostly sunny conditions right across the, uh, the state, I think. Could be a little bit cold at first on Tuesday and Wednesday morning with a little bit of patchy frost around, particularly in the south, uh, but, but gradually getting warmer during, uh, during that period as well as winds turn northeasterly. Uh, our rainfall totals out to the end of Monday. Uh, generally, 
less than one or two millimetres about the northern agricultural area and near western coasts, but a little bit wetter about the southern agricultural area where we'll see two to five millimetres and possibly some local falls of five to ten millimetres about the uh, Mount Lofty Ranges, Kangaroo Island and the southeast district. So a little bit of shower activity around, but uh, not any particularly big falls over the next few days, uh, Selena. All right. Thanks for that, Simon. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Selena. Simon Chimkey there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland parts of New South Wales tomorrow, both the upper and western districts are looking at sunny days. Winds will be south to southwesterlies, around 25 k's an hour, becoming lighter as you get into the evening. Overnight temperatures will fall to around 10 degrees, with daytime temperatures reaching the mid-20s. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the country in this next half an hour, a mystery around thousands of sudden bee deaths in the Riverland. Also, if you're listening in yesterday, you might have heard about uh, a company that's looking to brew milk in a lab. What does the dairy industry think of that? You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Good afternoon. Great to be here. And I'm with you right through until one o'clock as usual today. Coming up... A mystery around the sudden death of thousands of bees in the Riverland. And if you're someone who uses a lot of olive oil, where is it coming from? Do you check the label? Is it Australian olive oil? Well, that is seeing a boom in demand from consumers of late. So people are going, well, if I'm paying the same price, why wouldn't I buy the Australian product? So it's actually been a real boon for Australian extra virgin olive oil and for Australian olive producers. A good news story coming out of the olive oil industry here in Australia coming up. More on that shortly. And we'll come back to this issue of milk brewed in a lab. What does the dairy industry make of that? But first, Matt Coleman is here with news. Good afternoon. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the White House says the US is in active conversations with Israel to allow for safe passage out of Gaza for civilians. Most have no electricity or water as hundreds of airstrikes continue to pound the tiny enclave. The Palestinian territory has been under siege since Saturday in retaliation for deadly attacks by Hamas militants on Israel. A Riverland beekeeper says he was upset to discover thousands of his bees have died from an unidentified poison. Rob Johnston says he's lost seven hives, each with about 40,000 bees over the course of two weeks. He suspects fruit fly spray, which Persa administers to Riverland backyards and properties to help eradication efforts, could have killed the bees. And health experts say they wanted to spell the myth that menopause causes women to leave the workforce in large numbers. This year's National Women's Health Survey found only 7% of midlife Australian women have missed work due to menopause symptoms, while 17% reported taking an extended break in the last five years. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman there with headlines. Well, yes, a Riverland beekeeper is now cleaning up after the fallout from the southern death of thousands of his bees. Paringa resident Rob Johnston says he suspects they were poisoned by Queensland fruit fly spray, spray I should say, uh, used as part of the state government's eradication efforts. Uh, while he's trying to save some of his hives, he is waiting for a toxicology report from Persa, and he explained his ordeal to Eliza Burlage. 
I had some hives at uh, Plushes Bend Road or just on a property that's on the Plushes Bend Road about three weeks ago and I inspected them on a Tuesday. When I went back on the following Monday, the bees were all in various states of dying. Three of them in particular were totally annihilated. They're just thousands. Those bees would have had 40 to 45,000. Hives would have had 40 to 45,000 bees in them. And I'd say 90% of the bees were dead. What an awful discovery. Yeah. And I contacted Perza, Michael Stedman, he told me to get some samples of dead bees, which I did, put them in a freezer. He then contacted Perza, that is the fruit fly group that are in the Riverland. Michael is part of Perza as well. And uh, why we did that is that Wong Lee, who owns the property, I rang her as soon as I discovered the bees and said, hey, they've been poisoned. And then about two hours later, she rang me back and said, hey, I saw Perza, the fruit fly group, spraying down along our fence line on another property, a property that butts theirs. But, and I said, did they contact you? And she said, no, no, I just noticed them. And that's when uh, I told Michael and he contacted the fruit fly group. And then Ben, he's from downtown, but he's something to do with the fruit fly group, came up and inspected the, the scene. I had seven hives and eight nucleuses there. Seven hives were affected and four of the nukes were, for some reason, four nukes did not get affected. Since then, I've just watched them slowly die. For two weeks, there were bees crawling out of the hives. And that was just young bees that had hatched from the brood because it's quite warm and they're not dying, they're hatching. And a couple of hives I've been able to rehabilitate. They weren't as badly affected as the others. And by what I mean by rehabilitate is I just go and get swarms or nucleuses I've formed and put them in. I haven't done it yet, but I'm in the process of doing it. Uh, meanwhile, I've had to scrape off all the frames because uh, we don't know what the poison is, so I can't use the honey. And uh, yeah, and then to cap it off, while I was waiting for everyone to come and look and see, five beetles got in, and the Ben inspected the hives on the Thursday with me and by the following Monday they were slimed out by the hive beetle. And hive beetle just, all you see is masses of maggots in the frames. Uh, The cause of that is that when the hive beetle lay eggs in the honey, the grubs come out and their faeces causes the honey to ferment and so you just get this yellowish slime all through your hive. And uh, at the moment I'm waiting for a toxicology report. You said you've had bees poisoned before? I've had little, uh, you know, you look out the front of the hive and there might be a few hundred bees dead. That's a few years back. And I suspected a property nearby sprayed at the wrong time of day. But it was never a major kill. It was just a setback. And is there any um, compensation or support? Or will it just depend on the results of the toxicology report? Oh, it'll depend on the results. I mean, they're not going to support me if it's not their fault. And, yeah, there were, I'm not sure uh, what what the deal is. I haven't spoken. He's the... Michael was the apiary officer, but now they've got new titles. But basically, Michael Stedman is the apiary officer. That's a bit further up the ladder than he was. And he'll get back to me and tell me what's available or what's not available, I'm presuming. We do for our registration plan, I think that covers if we were hit with 
American Bowbird, but I'm not sure there's, there's any coverage of anything else. But I could reasonably ask if there's if the fruit fly group are responsible, then I could reasonably ask for them for compensation, I think. That's Beringa beekeeper Rob Johnston there speaking with Eliza Berlage. The Department of Private Industries and Regions says it's working with him to determine the cause of death for his bees, including toxicology testing. Persa says it uses certified organic bait as part of its fruit fly eradication response, which is the same product used on organic farms. It says the bait does contain some sugar content, but is designed to primarily appeal to fruit flies and would not attract bees under normal circumstances. It is 23 minutes to one with Selena Green today. Well, if you were listening into the program yesterday, you would have heard about a project to brew milk in a lab. How palatable does that sound to you? Well, as you can imagine, the dairy industry tastes a little sour. Milk brewed in a lab can't compete with the nutritional benefits of dairy produced by a cow. That's according to Dairy Australia after this announcement that lab brewed milk company Eden Brew, whose non-animal milk could be available as early as 2025. The company's in partnership with a New South Wales-based cooperative Norco. It's raised $25 million in investment, including $6 million from the Victorian government. In case you missed it, here's Eden Brew's CEO, Jim Fader, on what he had to say about the taste and environmental footprint of precision fermented milk. We believe that our final products will be so close that it'll be very difficult to discern any difference. Uh, I think energy could be as much as 50% of the cost of running the fermentation plant, uh, so renewable energy is really important. Uh, in terms of water, we, we will use a fraction of the water that is um, required within the dairy industry and within um, plant-based milks. Um, and uh, we, at this point in time, forecast to be under 10 litres of water for one litre of milk produced. Well, Dairy Australia's Sustainable Dairy Nutrition Manager, Melissa Cameron, she says dairy remains in a strong position, particularly when it comes to price. These products still have quite a way to go in terms of the technology to develop them as an actual final end product. They've got the investment and also regulation from food standards. I think also from a, a you know, to deliver that milk taste, mouthfeel functionality and nutrition that cow's milk has is, is going to, you know, be quite a sort of a feat as well. Uh, Eden Brew will create some proteins and then to add that to become a beverage, they're going to have to add carbohydrates, fats, vitamins and minerals to get something that looks and tastes like milk. Cost will also be a, a bit of a thing. So I, I think at the moment it will be quite a way off and it's really up to consumer perception. We know that milk, cheese and yogurt, is really well loved and consumed by Australians. So at, at this stage, we see that consumers will continue to consume dairy products as, as they are. Are there concerns around the nutritional profile of some of these synthesised food products? It's really hard to know because they haven't delivered a, a final product yet. So as I said, they can replicate a few key proteins. There's a lot more proteins that occur in natural milk and then they need to add ingredients that will deliver the fat, carbohydrate, vitamins and minerals to It'll be really a, a combined product to get that end product that will meet, will look, taste, function like dairy milk. Dairy milk has the natural nutrition in it, so it won't be able to compare on a nutritional um, perspective, I think, in the end. But it's still a bit of time off to understand what that will look like in the end. What does the future of dairy look like with some of these synthetic products? Is there research and development happening on the dairy side to put dairy in a competitive position or do you feel like dairy is already in a strong position going forwards? 
There is in an incredibly strong position going forward, recommended within the dietary guidelines. It's safe, convenient, affordable. It's well-researched, um, consumed for thousands and thousands of years and has really good evidence around health outcomes. So I, I think dairy will maintain a really strong position, particularly around that affordability that we're seeing at the moment. Potentially these synthetic products will take quite a time to actually come down in price because of the infrastructure and the requirements needed to invest in delivering an end product. Eden Brew has said that they use around 10 litres of water to produce a litre of their precision fermented milk. They say that energy is really going to be their, their greatest input. I would agree. So there's, there's been some research, there's a couple of papers coming out that are comparing the water footprint of milk versus this sort of cellular agriculture and defining that the, the environmental footprints are pretty similar from that sort of greenhouse gas emissions because of the electricity and power used for the synthetic products versus, you know, from, from the cow. So there's not a lot of difference in that end product at, at this stage between the, the products. A lot of stainless steel and a lot of energy required and a lot of cleaning and water used. From your perspective, do the environmental credentials of cow-produced milk and synthetic milk match up, essentially? At the moment, they're on a bit of a path, yes. And I'm sure they'll be working hard to improve their sustainability credentials, just as the dairy industry is. We have an Australian dairy sustainability framework. We've got significant investment and commitments to reducing all of our environmental footprint over time. I'm sure that they'll be working the same as well. As Dairy Australia's Sustainable Dairy Nutrition Manager, Melissa Cameron, speaking with Fiona Broom. And if you want to read more about this, uh, synthetic milk or milk brewed in a lab and the dairy industry's response, hop online, abc.net.au forward slash rural. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Have you been buying a lot of olive oil recently? What type do you buy? Is it Australian-made olive oil? In recent months, the industry has noticed an increased trend towards Australian olive oil as imports from Europe have become more expensive. The chief executive of the Australian Olive Association, Michael Southen, explained to Elsie Adamo what's led to the increased price of imported olive oil and how that's impacting on consumer behaviour. So a lot of the, the drive in price with extra virgin olive oil and olive oil generally has been the, the dry drought conditions that have been experienced in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in the Mediterranean area where countries like Spain, Italy and Greece uh, and other North African countries have really copped it and therefore olive oil production has dramatically decreased. So Spain in particular and, and all of these countries are significant exporters of, of olive oil and particularly into Australia. So even though we produce a lot of high-quality extra virgin olive oil, we still import more than what we actually produce, which is great because it means that consumers are consuming uh, extra virgin olive oil. However, because people who buy the Australian product value the Australian origin of extra virgin olive oil, they're happy to pay a premium, a bit of a premium. They've been doing that for some time. What we've seen now is that the, the lower price imports have come up to be equivalent in price or even more than the Australian product. So we're actually seeing a bit of a switch. So people are going, well, if I'm paying the same price, why wouldn't I buy the Australian product? So it's actually been a real boon for for Australian extra virgin olive oil and for Australian olive producers. And how Ugh. long have you been noticing this for? Oh, well, look, this is something that talking to you know to some of the, the very large producers like Cobram, um, they've certainly seen it through through uh, supermarket sales. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just a, a trend that's been been ongoing. So. What's very important is that we see that, you know, we, we make sure that our Australian product is, is still out there, its quality remains 
high and it always will, but we actually probably offer more price stability than what the imports do, which again is something that the average consumer likes because they know that from week to week that when they're buying their olive oil, they're not going to see massive swings in price. And we're not expecting that to change for Australian olive oil anytime soon. You think that the price will remain stable for the months to come? Oh, look, look, I don't think the story remains stable, but I think the Australian product is going to be very competitive compared with the imported product in price. And is it still a good time to get into the business? Are there still people choosing to go into this industry? Yes. Look, what, I've just recently returned from South Australia, actually, where we held the Australian International Olive Awards, where we have judging of the, the best quality Australian product, but also olive oils that come in from overseas. And there's a real buzz around the, the industry at the moment. We've seen a lot of younger people. There's a bit of a generational change. So people who were involved at the start of the industry in, in the 1990s, they're starting to get to a point now where they're wanting to retire. They're, they're selling their graves. And what I'm seeing is that there's some young people coming in who are really keen to, to get involved in the industry and really keen to take the industry to, to new places. So we, we look at Cobram. Cobram keep expanding. Um, they've got huge potential for, for more growth and more production. So it's a very, I think it's a very positive position for the industry at the moment. You know, it is a, it is a, great, a great industry, and I think that even though we're seeing these world record prices, I, I think it actually, it's not, certainly not having an adverse impact on the Australian product. If anything, there's been a slight decrease overall consumption so some people are choosing not to buy olive oil and maybe choosing something else. But what we're seeing is that because prices have gone up, the overall value has increased in terms of what people are buying. So even though there might have been a slight, a slight decrease in consumption, it's been more than made up by, by the increase in the value. So it means that people overall are actually spending more money on extra virgin olive oil now than they were prior. Right. And how, I guess, big is that, that slight decrease in sales? Oh, look, look, it's tiny. It's, it's in the order of, you know, certainly less than 10%. It'll be around about 5 you know, 3 4 5%. It's quite small. Chief Executive of the Australian Olive Association, Michael Southern. So, have olive oil producers been noticing this change? Well, according to South Australian olive oil producer Pendleton Olive Estate, it has indeed been a busy few months. Director Nick Whiting says they have certainly been getting more inquiries for their products. Yeah, we have seen an increase pretty much across all um, all the products in, in all the sectors. Probably been over the last, certainly three months, about three to six months. Yeah, so it's probably less so from the more specialty type consumers and mainly uh, an everyday consumers, including the bulk and, and more convenience purchasing. Right, and where are your products sold, Nick? Yeah, we're pretty evenly spread across all sectors, like retail, food service, and we do export as well. We're ranged across... You know, Australian retail supermarket stores. We distribute through to restaurants and cafes uh, in the food service sector and then um, Southeast Asia for some of the export products. What kind of percentage difference are you seeing? Look, there's been... Um, inquiries have been uh, substantially uh, increased. Um, certainly um, sales have been a little bit up as well. It's a little bit hard to tell you know, how much across the markets. But yeah, there's definitely inquiries for products has certainly increased a lot in particular um, overseas markets as well. What do you think is behind this increase? Yeah, look, there's um, definitely a bit of a supply shortage overseas out of Europe. So people are looking to you know, replace some of that with a local product. And certainly some of the overseas markets are looking for quality product and having to look a little bit further than their traditional markets that they've been uh, purchasing from previously. 
And are you confident you'll be able to maintain those relationships as European prices start to fluctuate, that they'll stick with Aussie once they've tried it? Uh, Yeah, look, I think as people do try more of Australian product, we've only really been... Australian product in general really only competes by being high quality. So typically, if once people do consume it, they do realise that there's a bit more to it than probably your, your, your average standard product that's on the market. And you said there has been increased interest amongst all your products. What's the most popular product just in, in general? Is it your standard extra virgin olive oil? Uh, yeah, definitely. That's, uh, that's the prime focus of our business is the extra virgin olive oil, EVU products. But I guess just by um, bulk volume, we, we do tend to sell most of the, the product through to restaurants, which are buying the larger sort of 20-litre type containers, 5 to 20-litre containers. But certainly the more popular stuff, like supermarkets, is the 3-litre tin is quite popular, but certainly more regular purchasing is like a 750ml bottle. Have you noticed any more people just buying in bulk just to try and save a bit of money? Look, yeah, it, um, there's always been a bit of a mixture. So, yeah, there's probably more inquiries for all products in general, but yeah, there's definitely more people inquiring about trying to buy bigger 20-litre type products that you normally sell through the, the kitchens and the restaurants. The thing to remember there, of course, is that, you know, once you open it, you want to try and, there's no point storing it for too long. You want to try and keep it fresh to get the, the best flavour and the health properties out of it. That's Pendleton Oliver State Director Nick uh, Whining, and he's speaking there with Elsie Adamo. If, uh, again, you want to read more about this, keep an eye on our website. Uh, We'll have a great story going up very soon, abc.net.au forward slash rural. You're with Selena Green on this Thursday afternoon. Well, some good news if you're a recreational fisher. And some good news for native fish as well. A habitat restoration project at the Bundalia Reservoir, which is about 40 minutes out of Clare, is giving fish numbers an immediate boost and bringing anglers into the region. And it's all been done by placing timber structures into the waterway. Project manager at Ozfish SA, Rachel Williams, explains. It's a very popular fishing reservoir, so it has been stocked with lots of native fish species, including Murray Cod, Silver Perch and Golden Perch. A lot of fishers go up there to fish it, Obviously, being a reservoir and not having lots of timber around the edge, there's not that natural recruitment of timber. So many native fish species and river ecosystems and water ecosystems rely on input of natural timber um, to function effectively. Um, But because obviously this is a man-made environment um, and also because there's no trees really close by, that doesn't really happen. So this is just a way of, I guess, just giving a helping hand to put that habitat or that timber back into the water and what that does is create really good habitat for the native fish which rely on it for for breeding and spawning and and hiding from predators or hiding to ambush ambush their prey things like that. What other materials were used and how were they structured and how did you know where to place them? So we work with SA Water so obviously SA Water Land and they know they have all all the GPS points and they know sort of how all the different depths of the actual dam of the reservoir itself. So we work pretty closely with them to establish some good spots because obviously when the water does get low in in hot weather, we don't want the, the structures to be too exposed. And also because people like kayakers might also use the reservoir, we obviously don't want to hinder their enjoyment as a reservoir. So we work pretty closely with SA Water to work out the, the best places for native fish, but also for people that might be using the reservoir as well. Uh, we were very lucky up there and there's a bit of an old plantation, a bit of an old eucalyptus plantation up there. So we were able to access some of the timber that had fallen down from their 
so we could just use it locally. So we just collected big, larger limbs um, and also smaller branches. So it's really important to make the habitat quite complex, not just you know a simple log or a simple bit of brush. So have a combination of really thick logs, really sort of intricate, I guess, smaller branches and leaves, and then strap them all together, trying to make the very interesting, quite large structures, strap them together using some really strong band and then actually attach them to limestone rocks so that when they're placed in the water, those limestone rocks sit at the bottom of the reservoir and therefore the structure won't move. So those fish, particularly um, fish like Murray Cod, will start to use those structures almost immediately. So they really do have an immediate benefit. So Murray Cod, and I, think, I believe the silver perch can't actually be taken out of the reservoir, so it is a catch and release. So it's sort of not about necessarily just increasing them so we can take more fish out. It will just create that habitat so the fish can complete their life cycle and become more abundant. Project Manager of Ausfish SA, Rachel Williams, speaking with Annabelle Francis, and that was a collaboration between Ausfish and SA Water. Hello to Francis, who's at Brighton, who uh, texted in to say, I always buy Australian olive oil, nothing else, because I support the local product. Thank you, Francis. Well, finally, today we may soon be growing vegetables at sea. Yes, at sea, after a world-first self-sustaining solar-driven sea farm prototype has proven successful. It's been created by researchers at UniSA. Broccoli, lettuce, pak choy have successfully been grown in the prototype so far, which evaporates seawater and recycles it into freshwater, growing crops with minimal human involvement. Our future industries researcher, Professor Holland Su, says the prototype's only been used on indoor saltwater pools so far, but it could be deployed inland as well as in seawater. We uh, combine two technologies together. One is uh, interfacial solar evaporation technology, which can be used uh, to evaporate seawater and then collect the condensed water as clean water. And another one is uh, about the, the, the soil technology and the agriculture. So we designed this uh, like a vertical sea farm, double-layered structure uh, for simultaneously seawater desalination and uh, plant growth. So this device has two layers. The bottom layer is uh, we call the evaporation layer. Uh, it's for seawater evaporation and uh, clean water generation. And then the generated clean water is automatically transferred to the top layer, which contains uh, soil, seeds, and the plants. So this water can supply the uh, can 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 be used for plant growth. That's the main concept of this work, this project. Right, so what kind of plants can use this technology to grow? Yeah, we tried three vegetables, as I showed in the picture. Broccoli, uh, lectins, and the packed koi, and these kind of three. And uh, in principle, any kind of uh, plants can be, you know, cultivated in this uh, device. Is this something you could see that might be, uh, after further trialling, able to be rolled out commercially? Is this, you know, a real viable option for the future? Uh, yes, we believe so. First of all, we already approved the concept uh, by some outdoor tests. There's an outdoor test with using a pool containing seawater. Uh, the area is uh, one square meter. That's uh, already could prove that the feasibility of our technology for scaling up and uh, for practical applications, we need to consider the, the natural environment. Like if you want to really deploy on sea surface, we need to consider, you know, the, the wave and the big wind, this kind of things. We can also deploy this in the inland, like a drought area with bore water, underground water or wastewater. 
we can also use this kind of water source to to you know run operate our system and uh, yeah i think uh, yeah there's still some engineering work to do to yeah to scale up and uh, yeah fit the the practical conditions environment conditions yeah, so the trial took place on a pool, which is obviously uh, pretty calm water. Uh, what areas in South Australia might actually, you, that might be practical to, to trial this on actual, um, you know, real ocean water or real bore water? What areas uh, would you consider? I think there's a lot of areas along the Maru River. Uh, there's some uh, wetland and uh, with uh, underground water uh, having high salinity, I think and also some mining area. As far as the actual tech goes to making this happen, is it something that requires, you know, regular maintenance or regular checking with staff? In practice, what would it kind of look like? Yeah, uh, normally this system can work automatically, but uh, yeah, yeah, after uh, a long period, we may need to check the, the falling problem of the photosomal materials, our evaporators. Also, we may need to check the temperature in the plant growth chamber. So sometimes when the sunshine is very strong uh, in the upper chamber, like the upper greenhouse-like structure, the temperature might be is too high. So in that case, we need uh, some something somehow to open the the cover to cooling down a little bit and uh, yeah to make the temperature suitable for plant growth. So this somehow is what we needed to do. Yeah, this can be done by you know uh, putting some uh, sensors, temperature sensor, humidity sensor in the in the device, and then yeah automatically adjust the the open or close of the cover. That's the University of South Australia Future Industries researcher, Professor Holland Sue. They're speaking with Elsie Adamo. It's a couple of minutes away from the news. Now, if you are one of our Metro listeners, uh, you'll be getting your regular programs coming down your radio this afternoon. If you are a regional listener, you'll be off to the cricket after one o'clock. And if you would like your choice of what you'd like to listen to, hop on the ABC Listen app. It's a free app. You can download that onto your smartphone or tablet right now and have a rustle around in there and uh, see what you'd like to have a listen to. You might have liked to listen to Jason Chong. He'll be on your radio for afternoons today. Hello, Jason. Hey, Selena. How are you? Very good. What have you got on for On today's us? show, uh, we're going to be talking about can you have a carbon-neutral Christmas? Uh, we'll discuss you know, what you can do to not just have your bins full of junk for weeks after Christmas. Uh, also, uh, it's our producer's challenge day. So if you have a burning question, we want to hear it and find out the answer for you. And, and this might um, change if you're going to watch the, listen to the cricket or us. We're going to talk about bowel, uh, bowel cancer screening. Yeah, because they're changing the rules, aren't they? I think they're looking to change the rules. They're looking to um, have the screening age go from 50 to 45. Mm. Yes, which will obviously uh, include more people and hopefully get some more early detection. That would be fantastic. Well, a lot to come on your program this afternoon. Have a great one. Thank you. Jason Chong, he'll be on your radio for this afternoon, for afternoons. As I said, uh, regional listeners off to the cricket, but the ABC Listen app is what you should have on your phone or your tablet if you'd like to have a choice of what you're going to listen to this afternoon. It's coming up to one o'clock. The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder, on the road, interstate, out of space. Download the ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.